0: And the reason that I am concerned with water scarcity or water availability, availability from an emergency management perspective, is there is no substitute for water you know we can eat grasshoppers for protein and honestly depending on how they're they're cooked they're really tasty and-
1: hi and welcome to the em weekly show and this is your host todd DeVoe speaking this week we are talking about the role of public health and emergency management you may know that there's a school of thought that em belongs in the realm of public health as lead agency I can see that point, especially in the area of prevention. However, today we need to reach out to our partners in public health and foster a good working relationship. Have you been to the EM Weekly Facebook page and are you a member of the EM Weekly group? If not, now is the time to join. We are going to be giving out a few books to our listeners on the EM Weekly Facebook group. You need to be a member to win. So join the group for more details. Speaking of books, We are starting our Book of the Month Club this March, and I will be discussing a book that I think will make you as an emergency manager better at your job. If you have a book that you think will improve the profession of emergency management, reach out and let us know. Now on to the interview. Hey, I'm excited to have uh, Paula... Uh, Buchanan here with me today, and she is a PhD student, and she'll get into her history here in a second, but uh, I got to meet Paula at the IAEM conference in Grand Rapids, and that's another one of those, like I was telling you guys before, with IAEM, it's really important to go to these things because you get to network and connect with people, and, and uh, Paul and I got to connect um, at the History Museum, right, Paula?
0: Yeah. So uh, it was a gorgeous museum. I actually am going to go back to Grand Rapids just to check it out.
1: <laughs> so Paula, welcome to Ian Weekly.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: So Paula, like I was alluding to in the, in the introduction that you are a PhD student. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing and the research that you're working on with your uh, program.
0: So um, I am relatively new to emergency management. My background is more focused on business and public health. I have an MBA and also have an MPH or a master's of public health. And during my MPH studies, I was really interested in emergency management, but to date me, this was about maybe 15, 20 years ago, there weren't any courses that focused on emergency management then that I knew of. And there definitely was not a degree or even like a certificate or an associates that you could get then. So it's one of those things I, yeah, as I, I was saying earlier, is I just kind of put it on the shelf as something I was interested in and maybe you know, in the future, I have an opportunity to kind of do this synergistic thing between emergency management and public health. So I recently discovered the program that I'm in now. And one of the things that I really liked about it is that the gentleman who was the head of the program at the time actually had a healthcare background. He's a a vet med guy, veterinary medicine. And they offered elective courses and, um, uh, medical issues and public health issues related to emergencies and disasters. So that really piqued my interest. And um, so, one of the things that I've been trying to do is be a proverbial bridge between the field of emergency management and public health. Because, you know, if, if you just look at the news, there's so many public health, medical related disasters and emergencies that are occurring that the two fields should be working together more closely.
1: And what what does emergency management and public health look like in your mind?
0: Well, for me, I think I, I discussed this a little bit earlier is, and keep in mind, I'm also a history major too. So I always think about history and language and how you communicate with people. And I think terms matter and their definitions matter, especially when you're trying to communicate something that can be relatively complicated with the general public. So for me in public health, one of the things we always talk about uh, is the power of prevention. You know, get vaccinated so you're less likely to get the flu, for example, or eat healthily so you're you know you're less likely to have a heart attack or have poor health. And in public health, prevention is one of the key things, one of the key components or ideas. But in emergency management, you know, you can't prevent disasters from occurring. You could lessen the impact, you could mitigate them. And so for me, as I've read literature um, in the emergency management sector that's actually been published by people who have a public health background, I've noticed that there, quite often, is this is disconnect because they'll discuss, for example, preventing a disaster, which kind of makes me grate my teeth. You know, that you can't, um, or I was at um, a, a lecture on community resiliency recently in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was right around the time that yet another storm or disaster was occurring. So all the emergency management practitioners who were slated to be on the guest panel were out in the field doing their jobs. So the only people that were left were people from the public health sector. People that actually seen on TV, they knew how to communicate effectively in the public. But again, they said the same thing about preventing emergencies or disasters from occurring. And you can't do that. And I think, you know, even though I'm definitely not at the level of some of these people, I could at least help kind of bridge that gap, which I see as a communication gap and a terminology and a language gap so we can better work together by understanding what it is we do and how we do it.
1: So if you take a look at like, say the outbreak of uh, 1918 with the flu, so something like that you're saying is, is non-preventable or is it just something that we have to contain?
0: Well, in public health, you can prevent. You can eradicate, say, a, an infectious disease. It might come back later, but you can at a point in time eradicate it. Um, but in emergency management, disasters are always going to occur. It's like just a part of the ecosystem, so to speak. You can lessen their impact you can decrease the severity and scope of them, but they're always going to occur, if that makes sense. And I think that, especially from a risk communication perspective, when we're talking to people about all of these, you know, the floods that destroy people's homes, the tornadoes that wipe out entire communities, we have to be very clear in the language that we use to communicate with them. We can't let them think, oh, we can eradicate natural disasters we can eradicate storms we can eradicate floods no we can't however you know we can help to lessen their effect or their impact
1: so basically saying some of the mitigation effects that or efforts that we use um going into say building the, the levees, say in um new orleans right for instance mm-hmm. where we saw those fail uh, over katrina or some of the dams that have uh uh, or that failed over the, over the years, that even though we try to do some mitigations portion of it, we might not be able to eradicate that disaster completely, but we can also encourage people to prepare individually, and does that help lessen the effect, do you think, on, on yes. those large-scale disasters?
0: Yes, it can, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the news about community resiliency. I was actually, like I said, I was at this uh, resiliency workshop and, you know, you can help communities be more resilient to, quote unquote, bounce back and be better after the storm so they can be better equipped to and better prepared to handle the outcomes. But there's just no way you can't make a community so resilient that they can actually prevent a tornado or a flood like right. what happened Hurricane Katrina from happening.
1: You know, one of the things that I always find interesting, we talk about earthquakes specifically, and the earthquake in the middle of the desert, where there's 7.8 earthquake in the middle of the desert, where there's no structures, is an earthquake. It's a seismic activity. But that 7.8 earthquake in the middle of downtown Los Angeles, for instance, would be a catastrophic uh, event. So disasters really is a human effect on on a natural phenomenon. That's kind of... Right. So basically then with your research, are you looking at how with, especially with the resilience portion of it, of how we can better do say uh, building structures and stuff like this with building codes to prevent catastrophic events happening? Or is it just more along the lines of the recovery portion that you kind of focused on?
0: Oh, for me, I'm looking more at what I call um, socio-technical systems how our, our technical infrastructure, specifically telecommunications, social media, how we can use our, use our technical infrastructure to better communicate with the public, especially populations that are more vulnerable. For example, uh, I actually, uh, I don't know if you, Todd, did you see the poster that I had at IAM? I honestly cannot remember. I think you did, right?
1: Oh, yeah, of course I did. With the uh, the, the area where they filmed The um, Walking Dead, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so The Walking Dead is filmed in Georgia, and there's an area called uh, Wood Quarry, which is known for all of you Walking Dead fans out there as a the site of a pit where maybe season two, season three, hundreds of walkers were somehow pushed into the uh, pit um, it's actually a real pit in northwest Atlanta, and it's called a, a bellwood quarry. It used to be a rock quarry. So one thing that from, a, from an emergency management and a mitigation uh, perspective that the city of Atlanta has done is they, they're in the process of transforming bellwood quarry into a water storage facility. Currently, the city of Atlanta only has about three days of water supply. So if right now, all the water gets turned off all across Atlanta, we would be out of water, let me see, by basically Sunday. And so the city realized, you know, this is bad. And about two mayors ago, maybe uh, Mayor Shirley Franklin's administration, she pushed to start uh, transforming the quarry into a water storage facility, which would increase the city's water supply from three to 30 days. Uh, the reason that I am concerned with water scarcity or water availability from an emergency management perspective is there is no substitute for water.
1: Right.
0: But, you know we can eat grasshoppers for protein, and honestly, depending on how they're they're cooked, they're really tasty. I know that goes about. <laughs> they are, but there is no substitute for water. And I know uh, some EMTs and firemen might be upset with me, but try to fight a fire without water. I mean, I know there's other things you can use to fight a fire besides water, but I bet you they're all liquid-based, which means they come from water, Um, or almost all of them are liquid-based. So, you know, that's a huge public health issue. The World Health Organization, which is one of the preeminent, you know, groups or think tanks in the public health sector have stressed, you know, water scarcity or water availability as one of the major emerging issues in public health. And it's definitely an issue in emergency management as well.
1: Right. In 2016, uh, the National Geographic did a great story called the water wars and talking about that was going to be our next conflict that, that uh, we were going to fight over clean water uh, worldwide, that oil and things like this are just going to be things of the past. And then um, there's also the book, I forget when it was made originally, I want to say it was the, late nineties, early two thousands called the Cadillac desert talking about the water issues um, in, in the Southwest, which is California, Nevada, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, and those areas here uh, with water scarcity and, and how we're, how we're really putting a lot of taxing on a lot of the water systems by moving more people into areas, which realistically we shouldn't be living in like Las Vegas, you know, and, and, and whatnot. So, um, I've, water definitely is one of those things that I I personally pay attention to a lot of because I I do live in Southern California.
0: Well, see for you it's ve- it's very present, and um I think what's interesting in a city like Atlanta is it's not. I mean, I'm just saying for the the, the residents who live here, it, it we don't think about it. We still, which irks me and drives me nuts, we'll waste water watering our lawns for hours in the summer. So I, I think for me it, it's looking at what Atlanta is doing when it comes to its water supply is very forward thinking, but also cities that are in theory less vulnerable to water scarcity must also address the public and effectively communicate the risk to them. Because for you, for example, it, it's the risk is there. You see it when you live, but here we don't see it as much.
1: Well, I mean, talk about water on on the public health side of things. I mean, take a look at Flint, Michigan, you know, with the delivery services. It wasn't about the water itself that was bad. it was the whole delivery system that is is terrible and and polluted. you know so it it is in areas that have i mean you have Lake Michigan and a lot of fresh water right there, but you can't deliver it in a safe manner. Um we're having the same issue. Um, here in, in, in uh, I forget what city it is in here in California, where the water system, they say it's clean, but it looks bad and it smells bad, and people don't want to drink it. Obviously, yeah. I wouldn't want to try it either. You know, but I mean, the water delivery systems that we have are are aging, right? And so, oh, yeah. does that cause a public health issue too, as far as the aging water systems?
0: Yes, it does, and um, and I think I. Maybe you mentioned this in my poster if I can remember correctly, but you know, part of, and I'll just use Atlanta as an example since I live here and it's an area of interest to me. Uh, we have clay pipes, we still have clay pipes from the 1800s that are part of our infrastructure. It's bad. <laughs> clay pipes. Uh, New Orleans, which is, you know, where I um, uh, went to college, I graduated from Tulane University, and so, you know, I, I actually worked for the city or interned for the city when I was there. And I know that their infrastructure is aging. It used to be the most innovative, you know, water pumping uh, station to help prevent, you know, flooding, you know, hundred plus years ago. So that's crumbling. And the thing is when you have a machine or a piece of equipment that actually works, when it breaks down, then where do you find the parts if the equipment was built a hundred plus years ago? So that that's something that crumbling infrastructure when it comes to uh, supplying water and other utilities is an issue all across the country, probably more on the East coast, I would think, and maybe in the Midwest because that part of the country is old. Those parts of the country are older. But
1: uh, They used to deliver water through lead pipes, right? You know, so we learned that was a bad, bad idea. You know, so we we're constantly trying to fix things. You know, it says here that uh, there's 1 million Californians, Lack safe drinking water, you know, and it's and those are things that you don't normally hear about um, in the news, you know, around the country. Of and then, you know, you have Flint, Michigan, obviously made huge headlines, um, and then I know the people who are. Uh, On the anti-fracking side of things, have done some water research as well in upstate New York where there's a lot of methane that got pushed into the water system as well Um, and in other parts of the the country that's doing the same same type of thing. So I think water is one of those things that uh, as emergency managers that we really should keep an eye on specifically and then also obviously with the public health uh, side of it. Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. You know, one of the things I uh, like to do most is save money, and right now you have an opportunity to save $100 off the EMLC conference uh, if you get in there, the early bird special, and it ends February 28th, so don't wait any longer. Click into emlc.us and get your early bird special of $100 off. If you're a student, don't forget, it's $200 off for you, so... Sign up now, and I'll see you in May. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help
0: people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people, to help each other stay safe and thrive.
1: Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them and tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. So I think water is one of those things that uh, as emergency managers that we really should keep an eye on specifically. And then also, obviously, with the public health uh, side of it.
0: Agree. There's actually, um, I can't remember her name offhand, but there was a lady uh, from EPA that actually presented a great discussion on water issues. Most people are familiar with what's going on with Flint, but there's also been issues in more kind of the, the Central Valley area of California, for example. You just don't hear it in the news that often. And for me, what I'm looking at is I'm definitely not like what we call in public health an epidemiologist or a bench scientist. I'm, I'm not that skilled at the sciences anymore. But that's the type of work that they would do is basically testing the water and figure out what's in it and how it can be improved. But if you take a step even further back, you know, just making sure that the water is there, you have to think about that first and then figure out, okay, we have a water supply then how can
1: we protect it? Yeah, protection infrastructure, it's very important. Yeah. So let's kind of wrap this into together because we really started talking about um, how public health can't oh, well, necessarily prevent disasters, but we can try to mitigate them and the into, back into the water system here. How do we as emergency managers and public health partner up to do prevention or Mitigation um, in this water <laughs> you
0: system made me really angry. I'm smacking you across yeah. the, the 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 interweb right now. But yes,
1: so, yeah, no. But I was going with mitigation, or mitigating the, the water crisis.
0: Um, I that's one thing that that I struggle with. You know, since I'm really new to this field, I see that this is an issue. But you know, like I, I'm not going to name names, but there was a paper that uh, that we were reading. On the public health aspect of emergency management, and I knew one of the authors. He was one of my professors <laughs> in graduate school, and I was all excited because I, I, you know, he's a smart cookie, and I was, I was all excited to read his stuff. Then I got to maybe about page three, and instead of saying he didn't, I think in his in the entire paper, the word mitigation was mentioned once. <laughs> the convention was mentioned about five times, and I'm just, again, gritting my teeth like, you know, is it my place, you know, as someone who's just a doctoral student, not even a doctoral candidate, to approach this professor of mine, you know, full professor tenure and say, look, I like what you're doing in this research, but you have to be really careful in your language, you know? Um, and that's, that's something, that's a tall task for someone like me to do or to perform. But that said, I think just opening up the floor for a dialogue, for example, you know, a lot of times when people love like my professor stature and this lady who was from the centers for disease control, CDC, you have to have places like IAEM or different conferences where you can more informally speak. You know, there is constructive criticism and then there's destructive criticism. And so I think if we, I mean, that's one thing that I've, I've found lacking so far is I haven't found many conferences, symposiums, or whatever you want to call them, where you do have a lot of public health and emergency management practitioners and researchers in the same room. And I think until we're actually more in the same room and communicating with each other and fostering collaborative relationships, this issue is still going to be there. Uh, for example, the paper that I mentioned, everyone that was on that paper had a you know, doctoral or terminal degree in public health. They just had an interest in emergency management. There were no people who had even like a certificate or undergraduate degree or any type of extensive training in emergency management. And so hopefully, as the field grows to incorporate more, you know, other fields like public health, And we start hopefully researching and collaborating with each other. Hopefully it'll transform to where you don't really hear prevention anymore in emergency management, which is a good thing.
1: Do you think that there should be a subset in education for public health providers or public health practitioners that uh, is emergency management? I do.
0: And what's funny that you say that, and I always tell people, that whenever I mention Tulane, it is a shameless plug for my university, which I love dearly. Uh, Tulane has a school of public health. It's officially called the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. And now I will say, I don't think they have like a master's concentration in emergency management. They do offer coursework. Uh, One of the courses, I think, actually focuses on water quality as an emergency management issue. So when I saw that, I I squealed with glee. Um, I thought that was really great. So um, they do have courses, and forgive me if I'm incorrect on this, but I think they do offer a certificate in public health. So um, I do think schools of public health are starting to more fully integrate emergency management issues like water availability or scarcity into their curriculum. I I, I think it it will be a while, if ever, before you see like a master's degree in emergency management that is offered from a School of
1: Public Health. You know, one of the things I find interesting about that if you take a look at, say, the large-scale earthquake in California, and this is, you know, obviously the one we talk about here where I'm at, or a Katrina or a Hurricane Sandy, something like this that really knocks us off the system for a while. And one of the things I found interesting about the great shakeout scenario that was created back a few years ago, well, I think it's, I want to say eight years ago now, with the large-scale earthquake that starts in the San Jose fall, goes through the um, Los Angeles Basin, and It really cuts off transportation and water into the Los Angeles basin. And Dr. Jones is talking about the fact that it's six months, she's saying, who just wrote the book called The Big Ones, um, six months without water. And when I mean without water, she means without water, not just drinking water. It's all water, sanitation, firefighting, the whole nine yards. And that being said, now it becomes a public health crisis because it is affecting sanitation. There is no way to get rid of sewage, there's no way to bathe, there's no way to do that stuff uh, on a regular basis without the water. And so realistically, we move in the recovery aspect of the things from a fire and police activities, maybe police might still be doing stuff necessarily when talking about rescue, uh, really comes back into a public health crisis of, of disease control after a disaster. So I think we really need to have that partnership between our public health people and our emergency management and our first responders coming in with a large scale event like that.
0: I definitely agree. And one thing that I I mentioned this earlier, that when I was getting my master's degrees, you know, there wasn't, there weren't any courses that offered anything about emergency management. So one thing that I did on my own is I discovered that our local police and fire departments offer what's called a citizen's police and a citizen's fire academy. Just so for my personal knowledge, I can better understand what our police department does, what our fire and EMTs do. And then by completing those two programs, I found out about CERT. So I had no idea CERT existed. And I I like CERT so much, I actually completed the training twice. (laughs) Um, But what's funny is, you know, in these different programs, I think I was one of the few... I think there's maybe one other person with a public health or medical background or a clinical background of any way, shape or form. There is a disconnect there, but hopefully as people like me who are interested in emergency management, but also have the public health or the medical background, hopefully we'll help you know change that. For example, in my cohort alone, uh, my um, doctoral cohort, we have, I think, at least three or four people who have medical and public health backgrounds. So that's huge, like out of about seven people, three or four.
1: What can we do as a profession to encourage more collaboration between EM and public health?
0: I think one thing, and this is definitely, I don't know if it's above your pay grade, but it's definitely above my pay grade, is to reach out to them. You know, CDC, does all types of work in disaster and emergency preparedness. They have entire divisions, uh, that actually that's all they do. I would, um, I I don't know how you would actually reach out, to be honest. Like I said, it's above my pay grade. But just say, hey, we have this conference. We would love to have, you know, some people from CDC um, who specialize, say, in, you know, keeping our water free from bioterrorism, for example. To use something more specific. We've heard that uh, you have these colleagues at CDC who are doing this work. What can we do to get you to submit an abstract to have a session at IAEM? Mm-hmm. I also think that people who are in emergency management can also uh, attend some public health conferences. Um, the big one, which is American Public Health Association, I doubt severely they have an emergency management track So you might almost have to create your own caucus or special interest group, which, you know, uh, you could do Academy health, which is an organization that I actually prefer to APHA. They have a lot of special interest groups. They actively encourage special interest groups and it's smaller. So you can actually, you know, get to know people on a personal and professional basis easier than something like APHA, which is just massive. So having that, Knowing that these different respective entities and organizations exist is one thing, but then also trying to actively engage people from both sides of the proverbial aisle, so to speak, (laughs) emergency management and public health, getting them to actually know each other and present at each other's conferences is really important. If there are, say, schools of public health, for example, that offer emergency management coursework. Or uh, schools of emergency management that offer public health coursework—that is also, you know, strongly encouraged—and try to get people interested in the field earlier. You know, th- can strongly consider undergraduate certificates or undergraduate coursework to try to get people like me, who were interested in both areas but didn't really understand how they would work together until much later in my career.
1: Right. So not only are you a teacher, but you're are a student you're also a teacher. Um, So if somebody's interested in learning more about your programs, how could they find you, Paula?
0: They could definitely find me on LinkedIn. I don't have my uh, exact URL uh, memorized, but uh, if you find me, Paula R. Buchanan, and I do use Twitter. I do prefer to try to connect with people on LinkedIn though. I will be coming to IAEM every year now, so I will definitely be there. If anyone does plan on going to IAM in Savannah, um, a lot of my classmates will be there as well because we really, truly, the ones of us that did go to Grand Rapids really enjoyed it. So I'll definitely be there. So yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the best ways to get a hold of me.
1: And of course, we'll have that information in the show notes. So if you're driving down the road or your pencil's not sharp, don't fret. You can just click on the links in the show notes. All right. So I'm going to ask you the toughest question of the day. Okay. What book, books or publication do you recommend to somebody who is interested in the topic of emergency management? And let's give a twist to it, public health.
0: Public health. You know what? I have yet to find one, to be honest. I will say when it comes to public health, there are so many different books out there. So many, it, it's kind of one that, as a friend of mine said, it's one of those hot and sexy new feel that everyone's interested in. One thing I would say, though, is coming from two different areas that are basically based on more quantitative research, you know, finding the, finding, uh, you know, the incidence and prevalence of whatever disease or whatever's going on, I would try to focus on the stories behind uh, the disaster, so to speak. There's a lot of raw data that could be transformed into information and then knowledge, The factual stuff, right? I think you should focus more on the stories behind the the data. Um, There is um, one book, I think it's called Disaster Cities, that discusses how different cities have responded to and recovered from disasters. Um, However, it's more emergency management based. It doesn't really go into public health as much. So yeah, learn about the why, the stories behind it, because um, I think we were discussing earlier the concept of climate change. And one thing I heard one day, of course, I believe as a scientist, I believe it's real. Um, But there's a lot of people who for whatever reason do not believe it. So one thing you have to, I think maybe there's a speaker at IEM who said this, that it doesn't matter whether you believe climate change is real or not. In emergency management, you have to focus on, okay, something happened. Now you have to deal with the after effects of that climate change. And so yeah. that's what you really have to focus on. You know, you can't really get people to understand something with facts and data, unless you're like nerdy people like us, but most people <laughs> don't, you know? No, you're right. you know, it could be a reality show based on disasters. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe people would be interested in that. And then that sounds gaudy and tacky, but you know, you have to you have to formulate stories and different visual ways to communicate information that might not be interesting to people unless you like looking at Excel spreadsheets all day.
1: <laughs> right. Right. That's so true. All right, Paula. Well it's getting down to the end and uh, i do appreciate your your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to say directly to the emergency manager before we let you go?
0: Uh, I really enjoyed the conference. I love being at IAEM. Thanks to everyone who gave me constructive criticism about my poster. And I really look forward to working with people out there to form that bridge between public health and emergency management, because I think both fields can become better if we work together.
1: All right, Paul, you have a wonderful rest of your day and thanks for being here.
0: Same to you, thank you.